Hello, and welcome again to Forefront 360, where we have conversations at the intersection of excellent art and authentic Christian faith. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the Chronicles of Narnia, something that uh, listeners of Forefront 360, people in the Forefront Circle, uh, it's pretty surprising, I think, that we haven't had this discussion yet in the, the years of, of Forefront and Forefront 360. Chronicles of Narnia, a bit of a uh, cornerstone, if you will, of the Christian arts intersection mm-hmm. uh so i'm very excited to finally kind of put this together we got a we yeah. got a fun uh bigger than usual group today i'm rich grisman chair of forefront i have with me zach ozinski hello cody schweikert what's up nate mancini avengers assemble wow and uh a special guest this episode our friend lauren lowen hello happy to be here so happy Woo! to have you if you're a dedicated Forefront 360 listener, uh, you the, the name Lowen might have rang a bell because we did have an, uh, an excellent conversation with her husband, Aaron Lowen, um, I want to mm. say almost two years ago now, maybe, Indeed. on our video games art. So if you, if yes. you uh, enjoy this conversation, or if you don't, go listen to that one because that <laughs> one's very enjoyable. So um, I think Cody was on that too. Remember that, Cody? Video games? How could I forget? Maybe we should do a, our board games art. Yeah, uh, we absolutely oh, should. Is the NBA art? Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. So slam dunk. We're gonna start with a lightning round, per usual. Lightning will will strike here, and the way we're gonna do that is I'm gonna ask a lightning round question, two of them, quickly to everyone in the group in the same circle that they were. Uh, introduced, and then I'd love it if someone would take the honors of asking me the questions when we get to the end, so that we all uh, get a sense for you know what's going on here. So, mm-hmm. uh, Zach, you're first. What? Oh, you got to answer quickly. By the way, this is lightning. This is you know no time okay. to ponder. Okay. It would be uh, funny if when we ask Rich the question, he gives like a really short answer, and we're like, oh, I thought you'd talk for a long time like you normally do, and he's like. Do you nope. think that I wouldn't obey my own rules? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, ready, Zach? I'm ready. What's your favorite Narnia book? There's two. Horse and his boy <sighs> and Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Okay. And we can get into why there's yeah, two yeah. later. Yeah, Not now. Wow. Cody, favorite Narnia book? Uh, you guys are overthinking it. All of you. It, it's obviously Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Okay. Yeah. Nate? Yeah. The Silver Chair. Lauren. The horse and his boy. Wow. Rich, what's your favorite Narnia book? The Silver Chair. All right. right, We're going to go around one more time with another question. Zach, favorite Narnia character? The Hermit of the Southern March. Wow. Cody. What a hipster, man. Yeah. I would. Okay, if I can't pick Aslan, I'm a basic. Why why can't you pick Aslan? Well, obviously it's the right answer. If if any of you deny this, then you've abandoned the faith. It's like favorite uh, book, the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I'll go with uh, the character other than that. So I'll go Eustace Clarence Scrub. Nice. A strong pick. Specifically in Voyage, not afterward. No. Um, yeah, post, post-conversion. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Nate, favorite Narnia character? I mean, in Silver Chair, you just call him Scrub. Yeah. But um, my favorite character, I think for a long time I would have said Reap a Cheap, but now I've actually got to go Puddle Glum. Mm, good Silver mm. Chair reference. Lauren, favorite character? Edmund Pevensey. Mm, mine is also Edmund. 
That's awesome. I was going to say the dark god Tash, but we'll save that for later. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. Not, not a fave. Yeah, yeah, okay. So let's um, just talk a little bit, lay a little groundwork. I mean, I think it's safe to assume that most listeners to 4 360 are some degree of familiar with Chronicles of Narnia. But As patrons of the classics. Right. Kind of the, the patron saints of Forefront unpurposely have become... Uh, Lewis, Tolkien, and Mako Fujimura. So, uh, <laughs> for all for different reasons. A little bit Ryan Diaz, too, if you're listening. Ryan, thank you. Okay, anyway, there you go. The modern masters. Yeah, so I want to know what your guys... Let's just, you know, open conversation here. I want to know what your guys' history with the Chronicles of Narnia series is. And um, anyone does anyone feel like Narnia has been particularly impactful to them, perhaps more than just, like, the average listener? Well, my dad has a friend named Mark Polowitz, who for my birthday in fifth grade surprised me with a box set of the Chronicles of Narnia with the full color Pauline Baines Mm. illustrations, Mm. Um, totally out of nowhere. And that was the year that the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe first came out as a, as a movie in theaters in 2005. Mm. And so... Narnia was very like in at that moment (laughs) and it took me I think like seven years to to read the the entire series I I finally finished last battle in like 12th grade um just took me a long time and then these books came back to me in grad school in 2017 or 2018 and they really hit a lot different. I think I read all of them in like in like six weeks, the, the second go around. And then the next year, read all of them again. And I, I think the reason that those books are so significant to me is that they really speak my heart language. They, they speak the language of children, but they're able to hold the greatest beauty of life with also the greatest sorrows and griefs of life as well. But it's all done in this, this frame, this understanding of, of hope. Mm. And these books just gave me a lot of hope when I've been in my own dark nights of the soul. These books have really been beacons to me. So I'm, I'm really grateful for them for that reason. Yeah, that's beautiful, Zach. Yeah, for me, I uh, did not grow up with the Narnia books whatsoever. When I was in fifth grade, we went on a field trip to the local movie theater, Joyland, Springville, New York. And uh, we saw Chronicles of Narnia. I thought it was awesome. Obviously, it had a profound effect. I was like, that was an awesome movie. I'd never even heard of this story before. Wow. And, uh, and then I didn't think about it again for a decade or more like i don't know so it it wasn't until college that i was like oh c.s lewis like i read mere christianity i'm like oh this guy is a my hero now and uh mm. I, I read the narnia books in college for the first time and was blown away by every single one of them deeply emotional to me and suffice it to say that when i finished reading the last battle i got the aslan uh, tattoo on my shoulder <laughs> forever. Uh, that, nice. That's how significant it was. I was like, you know, you don't, you, 
you know, some, you know, tattoos are a little controversial topic maybe for some folks, but uh, I thought if I'm going to get something, I want it to be something uh, that matters forever. And for me, these stories point to the story that, that does matter forever. So I was, I have no regrets about that decision. Um, Aslan has aged well. He's not been canceled. He's cooler than ever. And uh, I love these. I'm very excited for this conversation. Speaking of Aslan being forever, I'm really uh, concerned about any sort of future film adaptations because Liam Neeson is Aslan to me. <laughs> like I like when I read the books, I hear Liam Neeson's voice oh, as Aslan. You we'll know? get Morgan so, to do it. We'll so get Morgan on it. It's okay. Here's what, where I will jump in with the voice of Aslan. I I don't remember the first time I read the Narnia books. They were in my house when I was a kid. I remember having read them or having them read to me. And um, in my homeschool era, I remember writing like papers on them and mm. being very, yeah. very into them. But the thing that sticks out to me when I remember Narnia is I had the books on cassette as like an oh, audio drama nice. that I would play in my little boombox in my bedroom every single night as I was falling asleep. Did you have to focus wow. on the family radio? I did. I did. Oh, so yeah. to me, David, David Suchet. Suchet is Aslan. Wow. I've never even heard yeah. of this. Oh, you haven't heard of the, the radio drama? No. Oh, dude, you would love it. They're okay, cool. impeccable. Yeah. Wow. Th- that's it's, like, it's dramatized, though. It's not like... Yeah, yeah it's, drama- yeah, okay. it's dramatized, drama. and it's very... Accurate? Accurate, yeah. That's probably the best adaptation of the book into another medium that I've ever I would absolutely agree. So good. Super cool. And Nate, Nate played it on a drive to uh, Kentucky one time. We were in the car for nine hours, and Nate's like, I've got an idea. Yeah. Nice. So How good. far did you get? Yeah. Like three books in nine hours? Don Treader. We did We, we did most did, of Don Treader. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. We just did that one. But yeah, um, for me, my, yeah, my parents read me the books when I was little, and then soon after we we listened to all of the the folks on the family radio theater um and that that became kind of headcanon for me like Mm -hmm. that is the chronicles of narnia so i think that really formed my understanding of it maybe in the ways that for some people the the 2005 film did for me it was focused on the family i loved them i mean i've i've read them many more times since then and for me they're these these memorable stories, they have these lovable characters, quotable lines, and they're kind of part of my imagination now, such that when I run into to things in life or in theology that are like confusing or difficult, so often scenes from the Chronicles of Narnia will come to mind that will help me to like get through those times or to understand them or to reckon with what's going on in my life. Yeah. I mean, for better or worse, um, I, I grew up in a similar situation where Narnia was just like part of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think I knew the story of Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe before I could read it myself, you know. I do remember being really young seeing the BBC movie editions, which oh, I yeah. don't want to rewatch because I'm sure that I would like struggle with them now, but yeah. I have very positive memories of them. I've actually not seen those, and I think they're kind of controversial i guess well, some people I, love them some i know don't. i know that like aslan is played by like a lar- or is like depicted as like a large stuffed animal lion <laughs> so like that is i don't know if i want to like go back and see that <laughs> i mean it but, didn't have the budget that disney had of course not yeah 
Um, and the Disney one is the Disney one. I remember uh, reading like way back when it came out was very much aesthetically influenced by Lord of the Rings, which had come out very shortly before. So that's interesting. But anyway, to me, kind of similar to to what Nate said. Um, actually, you know, for better or worse, I'm not saying it's always a good thing. But I think that when I was young, I understood a lot of theological concepts through the lens of the Chronicles of Narnia, Mm -hmm. which I didn't really understand until I was older that that probably like, while that was helpful, it's probably not the best thing in the world that I like, you know, like I, I, I I came to understand things about God and like heaven and, and creation and stuff like that, that may be like fictional, you know, things like that. So that I've, we, I've had to weed those things out a little bit, but I definitely, uh, was very much influenced by these stories. One of the kind of controversies that's floated around these books is whether they're actually, especially in the kind of the contemporary moment, um, whether they are actually kids, your children's books. They were written in the 1950s, right? Most of them. I, I think the first one may have come out in like 49 or something like that. Yeah. But, you know, post-World War II England, I wonder, like when I, I have recently reread all, Magician's Nephew through Silverchair uh, in the past couple months, and I definitely think that uh, there are a lot of aspects of the books that I think would be lost on a young reader. Uh, and, I mean, I'm sure Lewis was wise enough to put multiple layers into his texts, but... uh. What do you guys think? What's the proper age group for the Chronicles of Narnia? Or is there not one? All of them. All ages. Multiple times. (laughs) Cool. Well, I'll read a C.S. Lewis quote. And this comes from the beginning of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It says, My dear Lucy, I wrote this story for you, but when I began it, I had not realized that girls grow quicker than books. As a result, you are already too old for fairy tales, and by the time it is printed and bound, you will be older still. But someday, you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, that pretty much sums up my opinion. So Yeah, there, there's another there's another C.S. Lewis quote about um, how when he was a child, he felt, he started to feel ashamed about reading children's books. You know, he got a little older and he was like, oh, I shouldn't be reading these books anymore. And he's like, of course, I got to a point where I was wise enough to, to realize that that's nonsense. And that's when I rediscovered my love for children's books. So, yeah, I don't think you I don't think you can really I've got a I've got a beautiful hardcover copy here and it yeah. is uh, color illustrated all seven in one. And <laughs> I hope, you know, God, God willing, I get some children someday and I will start reading this to them probably before they can even speak. But uh, so I don't think you can go too early, but I also don't think you can go too late. As with any good work of art, you you rediscover and your appreciation deepens uh, as you read it at different phases of life, right? So cool. I was in a bookstore this summer in Philadelphia and found this book. It's a companion to Narnia and it's huge and it's got entries on every single character every single place but also entries on like broader themes within the chronicles of narnia Mm. and one of the first entries in it is on adulthood and how adulthood is referenced within the chronicles of narnia as being this 
wrong and unhealthy way of thinking or existing that C.S. Lewis so dignifies and celebrates children and the minds of children. And uh, I'm just struck by how these stories, they can, you know, really speak to, to, to children in a particular way, but adults, I have found that I have been more in need of the Chronicles of Narnia spiritually and emotionally than I was when I was a child when I was reading them because they were good stories but these books have really ministered to me as an adult and um, so I, I, I like I like your point there Lauren about just how these these books are for all ages Narnia is for everyone that's great All right, let's let's get into the uh, the nitty gritty here. So everyone knows, and and there's uh, varying opinions on the value of this, but everyone knows that uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, in certain spots, is is a very clear Christian allegory. Uh, in, and in other times, when it's less clearly allegorical, it is clearly deeply theological, as as uh, many TV shows and whatnot have like lampooned there being, you know a lion Jesus in, in the story, right? Like everyone knows this about Chronicles of Narnia, whether you've read it or not. Um, mm-hmm. How do you guys think that these allegorical elements, so particularly the creation in Magician's Nephew, the revelation, let's say, in The Last Battle, and the gospel narrative in Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe in particular, how do you think that these allegorical elements impact the story? Is it, did Lewis do a good job? Is it too spot on? You know, like, what do you guys think about that? I would not change anything about these books. Uh, I think it's, I know that, uh, you know, his friend Tolkien famously, maybe this is true or untrue, but I've I've heard he did not like these books or at least he did not like allegory. And I, you know, if you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, like he took a very different approach to that story. Um, Mm And I think, but I think there's a place for both stories like that. The the major justification is these are for children, and maybe they're a little bit didactic. But uh, and and you know, at forefront, we have been known to critique things that are a little didactic or on the nose or um, not subtle. But um, this this is a story for children, and beautifully enough, what you just said, Zach, about how I need it more as an adult. Um, is, is just exactly how it feels. So it's a really great question, but that's kind of, it, it doesn't bother me. Um, I, I don't roll my eyes at any moment. I'm like a hundred percent serious about, mm-hmm. you know, anything Aslan says, I'm hanging on every word and it feels almost like a sacred text to me. So no, I would not change it. Yeah. It seems like Lewis very much like committed to the bit, as they say, where he didn't kind of waver along the way and say, well, I'm going to kind of make this less obvious. It seems like he kind of made it more obvious along the way. I mean, at one, mm. at one point he thought Treader was going to be the conclusion to a trilogy and that would kind of be the end of it. So the end of Don Treader is, of course, quite didactic with Aslan referencing the fact that he exists on Earth by another name. Right. Um, and so that, you know, it kind of makes explicit what everybody kind of already knew. And so it seems like as it went along, you know, and like you say, of course, with the magician's nephew and the last battle, which are the later ones that he wrote, um, 
it's kind of more and more obvious the connections he's making to redemptive history. And so he, he really committed to it. And I think that's kind of the why, why it works is like, he doesn't kind of do it incidentally as like from time to time I will drop this in, but it's really like all throughout. It is this, as he calls it a supposal. What if, you know, Jesus was going to be uh, incarnated in a world that was full of talking animals instead of talking humans. Uh, he would probably right. come as a lion. And then that's that kind of started it off, and he just committed to that. And because of that, like you say, Cody, it's it's confident. It is what it is, and it kind of exists alongside these other forms of fiction, you know, fantasy literature, and we can kind of enjoy them all for what they are. But I do think it probably will turn some people off. And like, I think, I think, you know, going into it because the Christian connection is so obvious, people kind of come to it saying, Oh, these are Christian books in a right. way that maybe with other, you know, similar series, AKA, you know, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, etc. People probably don't have that same barrier to entry. Um, so yeah, it is its own thing. It has its place and it has its strengths. I would also add that, as much as I love the allegorical elements, some of my favorite moments, and in fact, my favorite book, is not one of the most allegorical. Right. Yeah. Um, of course, it is boy you're referencing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I would never say that the allegory holds back a book or the series in general, but some of my favorite bits are just yeah. the magical world building mm-hmm. yeah. that happens throughout the series. Yeah, yeah. I I personally feel that the series is at its strongest from a writing perspective. Like, like, f- forget the um, the value that I hold in the message of *Line the Witch and Wardrobe*. You know, but I think that where the series like peaks in its writing is *Horse and His Boy*, and then again its *Silver Chair*. Mm-hmm. Both of those being the least allegorical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and Auslan kind of hangs back a little bit more in those books. Right. Although he is super present in yeah. Horse and His Boy oh, yeah. Yeah. and Silverchair. Which is, of course, part of the point. Right, <laughs> right, right. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, nice. I think that uh, one thing that I personally, I'll just push back like a little bit. Um, I don't, I wouldn't change anything that Lewis did. Um, I do think, though, that considering that the, the books are originally targeted towards children, I think that children wouldn't necessarily pick up... Like, like a child reading Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe for the first time isn't going to, like, realize necessarily, like, the full weight of the allegory. Like, they're going to feel the emotional gravity of what happens to Aslan and the fact that this, you know, incredibly good, incredibly powerful creature is, like, sacrificing himself for this terrible little boy who you know sold his family for sweeties you know and whatever and like they feel that weight right and i think that if i were to be consulted for some reason for like an adaptation of some of these stories i would want to lean into trying to keep that authenticity of the story itself by trying to like like ensuring that the clearness of some of that allegory is guised a little bit for like the average viewer um because i think that it can um when when you 
kind of realize that you're experiencing like a point for point allegory, it kind of like cheapens the, it doesn't cheapen the story or the value of the moral, but it can cheapen the, uh, the emotional impact of a, a character that you, you don't know what's going to happen. Like if you know that Aslan is Jesus, when you go into it, there's much less emotional import to him dying on the stone table. Spoiler alert. No. Sorry. No, yeah. disagree. <laughs> don't cite the deep magic to me, rich. Nice. <laughs> How long were you waiting to do that? Bro, honestly, I thought of it. And I was back. like, Cody, I do it like like three minutes ago. Nice. I thought of it. And I was like, oh, you got to throw that in. And then I was like, wait, rich and witch rhyme. So make sure you do it to rich. Amazing. And as you were talking, I'm like, this is the moment because right. I can't believe what he's saying <laughs> right now. I set that up for you. Yeah. yeah. I, d- I disagree. I still read. Uh, I, we still celebrate Good Friday and we cry and we're sad and we re- lament and we reflect on the death of christ even though obviously we know sunday's coming so uh i i don't think it cheapens um but i i I hear i hear your angle too i Mm. respect that yeah just to be clear i I meant for the non-christian reader Mm -hmm. obviously as a Mm -hmm. christian if you see the weight of aslan as a representation of our lord and savior jesus christ yes i i feel the weight of him dying you know but uh I'm actually like specifically in my mind, I was thinking about like someone like yourself, Cody, actually, who like comes into the movie theater and watches this movie they've never even heard of before, you know, like Mm -hmm. that. But anyway, I digress. In which case, the fact that sometimes the allegorical elements are more under the surface for kids, which you mentioned, you know, that kids might not pick up on all of those things. Probably a good thing. Right. 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 Um, Yeah. The story has to be good. I mean, the story has to be good. So speaking of which, what do you guys think is, what are some moments in the series, uh, any of the books, that you find to be most theologically beautiful or theologically profound? Uh, Before anybody steals it from me, the transformation of Eustace and Don Treader. The dragon bit? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can, can you run that down real quick? Like a, just a quick summary of Absolutely that bit? And I then what, what you see in that? So in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Eustace is um, just the worst little boy. Um, just a scrub. Just <laughs> just the worst, <laughs> the worst dude. Um, he's rude to people who help him. He steals. He lies. He's, he's the worst. And um, everybody on this ship... Uh, basically gets marooned on an island together. And Eustace, in his greed, uh, instead of helping people, helping the crew rebuild, um, slinks off into the mountains and finds a dragon's treasure trove. And in this treasure trove, he's like, awesome. I'm, I'm set. I'm rich. He steals from the dragon, who dies of natural causes. Yep, as they do. As they do. Uh, takes a nap on top of this heap of dragon gold, and when he wakes up, he finds himself transformed into a dragon himself. Um, so now his outer appearance yeah. reflects the true greed and, you know, vile in his heart. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a transformative experience for him emotionally as well, and he realizes that maybe he should be nice to people. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. after Eustace has become this dragon and he starts helping his friends, his family, um, kind of get ready to move on from this island, he becomes a better dragon person in doing this. Um, (laughs) 
until one night he is called away from the camp by Aslan to go back into the mountains and have his scales removed, as Rich referenced. Um, and this is a painful process for him. Aslan has to um, tear his dragon skin off of him in what I remember as a pretty visceral mm. description. And that, I'm remembering this now. Yeah. yeah, like yeah, he has to take like five passes, right? Aslan's like, "Yo, you got a lot of scales." This yeah. So right. at first, Eustace yeah. tries to remove his own scales, just scratching at himself. And he and Aslan look at each other, and they're like, "It's not going to work." Like, like that is it? You can't do this on your own. So Aslan, with his lion claws, digs in, tears off the skin, and Eustace is reborn as mm. uh, a human boy again, and. This analogy for me has become more profound as my faith has deepened over my lifetime of Mm -hmm. recognizing that the pain of casting off our old selves Mm. is a genuine pain. Like it is something that is against our nature, Mm -hmm. but it's worth it. Yeah. And we're Mm -hmm. not doing it alone. We have, Mm -hmm. we have our, perfect substitute we have christ acting in us to sanctify us and it is uncomfortable and the discomfort is not a sign that it's not working the discomfort is a sign that it is working and just the Mm -hmm. heaviness of that has grown in my in my heart as like from when i was a child and i was first reading this is like this is mean why does it have to be like that to a, a deeper understanding of what it means to become sanctified. Yeah. I also remember, too, that right after Eustace meets Edmund in the woods. Edmund's the first person that sees him after he right. turns back. Into and I remember human. the the like the potency of like Edmund having like walked that road before and being like almost like a mentor yeah. to him. Like the like one who can uniquely understand his like Eustace's like fall and then. The yeah. fact that he deserves another chance. Yeah. Right. Pretty cool. Yeah. I, I'm reminded of a season in my life where I had to confess some sin that I just had been hiding forever. And it was obviously, like you described, Lauren, so painful, just so painful. But it was good for me, but it just hurt so badly. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, it was a situation where I very stupidly, like, confessed, like, part of the sin, you know, but then uh, it remained, like, like hid the, the uglier parts. And, you know, over the months, the Lord was like, no, we got to get all of it out, you know, and it would have been better for everyone if I had just like, you know, owned up to what was going on fully at the front. But it's similar with with Scrub, right? He's like, he has to take a few passes. And I think he throws him into like a a pool of like water right Mm -hmm. at the end. And he's got to go all the way under the water, right? And it's just like, you know, we got to get it all out, man. It's so I, I do. That's one of my favorite moments. I'm glad that you stole that from uh, me. So give me a minute to find another one here. Yeah, <laughs> baptism. What about you, Zach? I love in The Horse and His Boy. So so the first time I read Horse and His Boy, absolutely hated it. But it was really? that, that was my fault. That was my <laughs> fault. because So I was in... Like, is this just I a was spinoff? In, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was in seventh grade and I had procrastinated on a book report I was supposed to do, I think. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and it was, uh, 
And it was like the day before it was due, and I just like reached for the book that was closest to me. <laughs> You're like, this looks short. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was like, this is a kid's book. <laughs> um, so I spent the whole day just scarfing it down. Uh, yeah. And so did not read it again until I was in my early 20s and just in a really hard place. And I was the, the part of all of Chronicles of Narnia that has moved me the most deeply has been when it's Shasta after he, Bree, Erebus, and Huyn have reached the Hermit of the Southern March and they're exhausted and Shasta gets to the hermit and he says essentially like what what happens now and the hermit says you have to keep running you have to go and warn the king that this army is coming Mm -hmm. and Shasta just like twists up inside at those words but what comes out of him is essentially like where is the king and he just like he accepts this burden that's put on him or this I don't know burden this like quest that he that is his to do and through a series of uh, you know of being in, like being encouraged having hope and then that having that hope like dashed he finds himself alone in the woods and mm-hmm. feeling the weight of just how hard and unfair and how painful his life has been how mistreated he's been how alone he has felt his entire life and it's dark and it's cold it's damp it's nighttime he's by himself he doesn't know where he is and all of his friends are back resting and being ministered to by the by the hermit and it's at that moment where he starts weeping just at the weight of of where he is and it's at that moment where Aslan begins to walk beside him and one of the first things Aslan does is because Shasta thinks that there's a this demon or this ghost walking next to him and Aslan simply breathes on him breathes this warm reassuring breath and says tell me your sorrows and simply listens to Shasta and just that illustration of the compassion and friendship that is real in Jesus that Lewis creates in that moment of the story is so moving to me and I'm just so grateful for the, the presence of that story in my life. And the trajectory of that story is, you know, Shasta keeps walking with Aslan into the morning and then Aslan's gone. But by the end of that journey, it's morning and there are birds singing. And mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I just love it. It's beautiful. That's an amazing scene. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. that was on my list as well of favorite sequences and 
everything you mentioned, Zach, but also just the incredible showcase of like God's sovereignty there of Auslan, you know, reminding Shasta, like I was the lion who did all these things. Like the moments that were miracles in Shasta's life, the moments that were just like tragedies, like terrible things that happened and like every moment in between, like Auslan reassuring him of his presence and his sovereignty over all those things. Mm-hmm. What what a beautiful thing. And I, I think that's definitely helped me in, in my life to to think about God's sovereignty in a better way. Yeah. Super cool. I've got a really quick one to share. Uh the um and it's the famous, you know, Beaver is telling the kids in, in line which the wardrobe about <laughs> the ki- the king, you know. And uh Lucy's like, you know, I should be pretty freaked out and afraid to meet a lion. Is he safe? And the beaver's like flabbergasted by the question. He's just like, mm. you know, he's, he's he's not safe. Of course, he isn't safe, but he's he's the king. You know, he's good. And uh, that line, probably more than any other, has come to my mind over the years, and it um, totally uh, obliterates any kind of prosperity gospel that people try to spread around. This idea that you know, just follow Jesus and everything in your life will start to work out. Every situation is just going to be smooth sailing. It's, it's a safe life. You know, following Christ is not a safe life. It's, it's dangerous, but it's good. And he's sovereign over it the whole time. And that, I mean, talk about boiling down one of the most difficult, complex theological, you know, (laughs) foundations of our faith, this idea that like, you know, following Christ will cost you a lot, but in the end, like, He's going to, he's, he's, it, there's this eternal security to it and a goodness to his plan. Romans eight twenty eight, all that stuff. Like talk about boiling it down into one little line, you know? Yeah. I really like, this isn't a moment, so I'm kind of cheating a little bit here, but I think that the, the theological like implications of kind of like the underpinnings of the world uh, really like speak to me. So I guess some examples of that. Are um, I'm fascinated by the witch's entrance into the world, um, where in the magician's nephew, um, Aslan sings Narnia into existence, and then the witch, not outside of Aslan's knowledge, of course, but the witch, Jadis, enters the world with the children, right? And Aslan references the fact that the world has only been in existence for a few hours, but evil has entered the world now. And I'm not quoting this exactly, but he basically insinuates that like evil has entered the world a a few hours into its birth and it will exist there until I eradicate it at the end. And like the idea that like that kind of arc of like God did create our world perfect, but evil was much like how Jadis was like magicked into Narnia, right, violently. Obviously, our, our, our kind of mythos of Satan has been expanded by, like, Paradise Lost and stuff, but, like, the idea of, like, Lucifer being, like, cast to our earth, you know, and then spreading his ways around and tempting the people away, right? And uh, that this, Lewis definitely had a, a clear understanding of that. You know, I think that's really cool. And then also the... um. I guess Aslan's relationships with the various peoples and kingdoms of Narnia, like he has a unique relationship with 
the country of Narnia, like the nation of Narnia, if that makes sense. But the whole land he refers to as the land of Narnia in the initial book and in the last battle. But there are other nations that exist in the land of Narnia and throughout the books, Aslan kind of like refer or people kind of speaking in Aslan's name, you know, in certain spots throughout the Mm -hmm. books explain that those lands did exist in the goodness of the initial creation and they have since like fallen away and pursued idols or rejected his presence or, or whatever. And, um, I just find that that reflection of our kind of like deeper reality as, uh, as Christians really, really cool. And then of course that all, all those strings culminate in, I I think the most spiritually or theologically potent aspect of the series, in my opinion, is the climax of the last battle where Lewis actually, you know, mimics revelation, but in a way that is uniquely Narnian, like with the, with the false Aslan leading, you know, like the anti Aslan leading to the end of that world. And, you know, you could do an entire podcast on just like the implications of that book. You know, and and it's funny because when I talk to Narnia fans like you guys here and also outside of here, no, very rarely or I don't think ever has anyone said that The Last Battle is their favorite book. But a lot of people agree that it's like you can't really have the series without it. You know, it's like it's like pivotal, even if it's not your favorite, you know. I mean, both like the Silver Chair and Last Battle are very mature. And it's one of the reasons that I love them so much. But the Last Battle in particular is is just so so hard and so tragic that I think it's hard to revisit. And to me, that's why I don't often say like it's my favorite, um, even though it is probably one of the best written or one of the right. most powerful. Mm-hmm. I love that book. It really yeah. helped me as a youth kind of come to terms with the end times right. and that there is tragedy in our current time and there will be tragedy in the future, but we have something greater to hope for. As a kid who was real freaked out, about read the book of revelation the last battle certainly helped yeah and um the imagery of like the separation of like sheep and goats per se Mm -hmm. at the doorway and all that just like it helped me to understand revelation a lot better yeah and of course the new creation right yeah right amazing i think through the chronicles of narnia was the first time that i encountered um what i now believe to be just theologically sound the idea that like heaven is not, you know, the cherubs on clouds, you know, <laughs> situation, but a, a new physical creation. Yeah, I think it's funny that it took a long time for me to apply. Like, I remember thinking like, oh, I really like Narnia's heaven. I wish like ours was more <laughs> like that, you know, because I yeah. grew up in an environment where I didn't, you know, think that way. So I wish ours was also yeah. more solid. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, as N.T. Wright says, heaven meets earth. Yeah, it does. Uh, some of you guys know my friend, my dear friend, Jim McCauley. He's been kind of around the, uh, our, he's a, he's a listener of the show. So friend, um, friend of the show, was, Jim McCauley. Friend of the show, yeah. But uh, he's he told me years ago, he's like, dude, listen, when I die, you need to read um, this, you know, last, one of the last chapters of the last battle, this uh, chunk at my funeral. So, uh, it, it's a really special ending for the, the whole book is super strange with 
the the fake Aslan and all, but the ending is maybe some of my favorite. It's not unlike the Return of the Jedi um, with Star Wars. Uh, some big chunks of that movie that I don't like super get excited for, but the ending of it is um, like some of my favorite stuff in the entire series. But uh, yeah, it's crazy that like sometimes I'm getting confused. I'm reading Revelation and I'm remembering this last Bible. I'm like, what creatures were in which book here? Cause there's some, a little bit of crossover, <laughs> uh, which is maybe by design. Lewis sees like, Hey, this is all going to crash into each other. Both worlds are going to collide. And, uh, I don't know. The mythical creatures are real. Yeah. <laughs> which is rich hot yeah, take for my, another podcast. <laughs> yeah. My, my continual hot take that I'll just tell anyone who will listen is that, uh, it is real. I'm now convinced that most mythologies are real. So we'll mm-hmm. talk about that another time. That is such a hot take. Just, yeah. a, just a tease. Yeah. Um, oh, listen to uh, Haunted Cosmos, another <laughs> podcast is where I got this idea. Great podcast. Anyway. All right. Let's talk about the various. We, we've touched on some adaptations like this Radio Theater 1 and the 2005 uh, edition and the BBC edition that some of us have seen with the stuffed Aslan. But um, so... What are your thoughts overall? Uh, Nate already mentioned he thinks that this audio drama was the best adaptation. Um, any thoughts from you guys on other adaptations or post, most famously the Disney movies, right? We got, they made three, um, in my opinion, increasingly worse. Wal- but yeah. Walden mm-hmm. Media right. made them and Disney distributed the first two and Fox the third. So they did, they did Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe and they did Caspian and then mm-hmm. they did Dawn Treader, Dawn Treader. Yeah. but but by they, Nate's pointing out that there Walden, was a Walden different. Media. Did right. Walden Media make the third as well? Yes. Yeah. Okay, okay. They got so. yeah, they got increasingly worse. Like you said, Rich, the first one is a legitimately good movie that I've rewatched many times. Like I stand by that movie. That's yes. a good. That's just a good movie. Uh, the the second one I watched, I was like, okay, and then uh, I fell asleep during the third one and didn't finish it. I so will maybe say, I can't fairly evaluate it, but I will say the second one. I think I said this to Nate casually while I was rereading Caspian over the summer. Caspian is like, like, I'm not saying the Prince Caspian movie is a great movie. I don't even know how to say this without sounding like I'm like dunking on this one book. But like, so Caspian is like hands down my least favorite of the series. I'm not saying it's a bad book. It's just it, not, it is for a it's lot just not people, my favorite. Yeah. But I think the Caspian movie is like better than the book, which is, I, I'm hesitating to say it because like, I'm, I don't know. No, I'll, I'll explain myself. I reread the Caspian book after having seen, like I read the book when I was a kid, saw the movie, whenever that was, like 2007, 2008, whenever it came out, I forget. I don't think I rewatched the movie. Yeah, like Caspian, when I first saw Caspian it. Caspian is 2008, I think. Yeah, so like I saw it in theaters. I don't think I rewatched it afterward, whatever. Reread Caspian, then rewatched the movie as an adult this past summer. The book is pretty bare bones. Like, actually, like, not a lot happens in the book. And they took a lot of liberties and added a lot of stuff in the movie, which Mm -hmm. I had heard disappointed a lot of people. But I'm not saying that C.S. Lewis didn't write a good book, because he did. But, I mean, like, the movie actually ties the drama more clearly to, like, the actions of the witch. And, like, like, the book almost feels... Not standalone, obviously, because it's the same characters as Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe. It's very clearly a separate conflict yes. in the book, or yes. at least it feels yeah. like a whereas very separate the, Whereas conflict. the movies, all three of them, I think one of the successes of those movies are the fact that the witch is a consistent threat that continues to return. 
and there's this like, you know, I, I personally think that that is a, uh, a, I don't want to say improvement because I don't think Lewis needs improvement, but like that is a narrative perk that I enjoy about the movies. So rich is the movie better than the book. Again, I don't want to say that, but I will is say that. Is the dark side stronger? Yeah. I mean, yes. But, <laughs> no. um, he doesn't but, want to say that, but it is what he thinks. Yeah, no. Dude, what Rich, I'm, that's what you're saying. No, to say it Stand like it. very, um, like I think honestly, I, I, think that the, I think that the movie is a f- more full experience than the book, which is crazy okay. because typically a movie is much shaved from right. its source material. But when you well, if you watch the movie and then go back and reread Caspian, it feels very light <clears throat> compared to what you get in the movie. Interesting. I have to revisit that. I don't disagree with you, but it is funny how you're talking about Narnia. You said at one point just now you're like it's not as if Lewis could be improved upon. <laughs> um it's it's how we talk about like the holy scriptures like <laughs> Right, 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 right. It's it's like a sacred it's, text. It's, obviously it's inerrant. It's a sacred, uh, a sacred text. text. <laughs> yeah, no, no. No. No, yeah. no, no, I'll I'll stand by it. I think that Caspian um could have been improved and the filmmakers made some cool choices. I'm thinking particularly of the they very much expanded the scene where um in Ka- well, first of all, Caspian's not like twelve; he's like sixteen, and he's like Ben Barnes or whatever. And Which I remember was a great call. Yeah, by I the remember way. my high school girlfriend was like Ben Barnes, and I was like, oh, <laughs> I felt anyway, the same yeah, way as yeah. a teenager. Yeah, but um, but anyway, um, yeah, and then the uh, uh, the scene when uh, the witch is like being in the movie, the scene where like the the witch is attempting to be resurrected by dark magic and there's these like evil creatures that appear. There's like a werewolf and like a hag and whatever. Yeah, yeah it's like Caspian is being tempted by darker powers. Right, and, that, and, and, and he's going to like blood sacrifice to bring her back, yeah. right? Which doesn't happen. That scene occurs in the book. Mm-hmm. But, but without the witch. Without nearly the same gravity and the witch is not there. It's more just like... Oh, like is he going to like side with the bad guys a little bit? Yeah, so they they are beginning their process in the book of like trying to bring the witch back, and then of course the good guys break in and break up the the ceremony that's occurring. Right. So a similar thing happens in in the movie, but they get further down the line, as you say, and and the movie implies that they could have brought the witch right. back because of that visual that you see her. Well, and also out. she like yeah. interacts with Peter and Edmund yeah. in that scene. And I feel like that's really like emotionally stirring, you know? Yeah. Um, and they add in the book, or I'm sorry, and now I'm just doubling down, I guess. One <laughs> thing that the book has, or the movie has that I think is superior maybe to the book is the fact that uh, there is a significant tension between Caspian and Peter about who like is the authority because Caspian is like the current king, but Peter is the high king. And like there's this like tension between them, which doesn't exist in the book. Yeah, so that's kind of a matter of preference, right? So in, in casting Caspian, they decided to cast him older. And then they thought, well, now that we have these two boys that feel similar ages, now they must have conflict right. in a way that if Caspian was younger, that it wouldn't make as much sense. Like Caspian yeah. would be more deferential. I just feel so. like it added like a weight to the characterization of everyone involved that I think was mm. positive. But that, but again, the Prince Caspian movie, like forget the adaptation part. It's not like this is like a five star excellent film. So like, mm. I don't even know what I'm saying at this point, but it's cool when the trees like fight back in the end, it's like ripped straight out of Lord of the Rings, but it's cool. 
That was one of the biggest. So <laughs> what I didn't say at the beginning of this this conversation was that throughout my middle school days, I was obsessively into the Chronicles of Narnia. Ooh. Like it was my entire personality, which was fine when I was homeschooled <laughs> and was real, real weird when I went to public <laughs> school in seventh grade. Yeah. And I doubled oh. down. And nice. so I had. You got the lion tattoo. <laughs> I had. No, but I did have quotes written on the front of all of my binders and notebooks. Wow. Yeah. I was a weird kid. I mean, Courage. like coming from like a Christian circle, it's like not surprising at all. So but just like thinking about it from the context of an American public school. Yeah. Yeah, my mother probably should have told me to <laughs> tone it down. Um, so those are my credentials. Yeah. I had... I think you have the highest cred in this conversation. I had really yeah. big feelings about the changes made in Prince Caspian and in Voyage of the Dawn Treader because... Rightly so. <laughs> so you're, you're trying not to unleash violence as we're just talking I, the last few minutes. I can understand and agree with some of what he's saying. I think narratively having um, the witch as a present threat is an interesting narrative through line. I think the conflict between Peter and Caspian is an interesting dramatic tension. I hate the idea that the witch could have possibly not been ultimately defeated in the line, mm -hmm. the witch in the wardrobe. Like, But, but yeah. she, she just straight up isn't though. She's back in um, silver chair. She is not. That's a different witch. That's the Lady of the Green Kirtle. You're saying it's not oh. the same witch? That's a different witch. It is not the same witch. Wow. I didn't know that. That actually, either. like, really disappoints me. Like, my entire life until this moment, I thought that the witch, like Satan, continually returns. Because, like, Satan was defeated at the cross, but he's still here. Yeah, so, so, so evil still is in Narnia in various forms. But Jadis herself, dead. Dude, Aslan Sorry. ripped that lady's face I, off. Kind of <laughs> is finished. I kind of hate that actually. Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not no. like gonna sugarcoat it. I, I don't. That like robs something from from me a little bit. But that's probably why you like the through line, yeah. right? And <laughs> Lauren did not. I was, big I did, mad. I did not. <laughs> At least in Don Treader, hated it. <laughs> anyway, back to your point about the trees. The fact that the trees were not like humanoid really bugged me. That really bugged me. Because it was an important point in the book that Lucy woke the trees up and Oh, you mean how in the book they're like they're, they're like they're humanoid. Dryads, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. They're just moving trees. They're just they're just trees. They're horns. There's the Lord of the Rings. A dryad in the course. Th there's an implication that there's a face somewhere in the leaves in like exactly point three frames or whatever. But Oh god. I was <laughs> I was big mad. About Lauren, you should have you should have led with some of this stuff before we had no, this begun is the podcast. This is good. This is where it's getting good. Yeah. Wow. I just had to look it up just to be sure that you guys were right. And oh, it, uh, there's the only like thing I can find here is saying that if you look up like the wiki for Jadis, mm -hmm. she is not. She doesn't continue past. Um, oh. wardrobe. So like, no, it's. I mean, so right. it's said like in in your favorite book, The Silver Chair. It talks about the Lady of the Green Kirtle and how she's like from a similar sort as right. as the White Witch. Right. But, mm -hmm. Yeah. I just always, I don't even know why. I mean, perhaps it is like the movie is just like leaking into my understanding. But like, I think like like I I'm actually like baffled here because like I, my entire life I just like thought that the witch 
all the witches in all the books were the original Jadis, mm. like reasserting herself yeah. in different forms. Like how Voldemort that's, returns. That's the thing, right? right. The Harry right. Potter right. effect. <laughs> and that would be interesting. It's just not yeah. Yeah. accurate. I think, I, for I, it, think, I, guess. I think the filmmakers Actually, really whatever. wanted that. I think the filmmakers saw Harry Potter and to an extent Lord of the Rings, and they were like, we need a consistent villain, and so they tried. And here's the thing. If you're coming at these movies from like a, let's make an interesting story, let's make seven to eight movies out of these beloved children's books, it would make sense to have like a common villain in all of them. Sure. Because the common villain in the books is the forces of evil. Got it. Mm, And that is, you know, a difficult villain to put on screen. Indeed. Oh, could I say a couple more things about the Walden films? Oh, yeah. So I think there are certain things like in each film adaptation of books that you realize they got almost, they got so right as to be almost like the canonical version to the point where when future adaptations are made, you're like, well, this is kind of sad because we know they're not going to have this, you know, that they had in the original series or whatever. And you know that from like, you know, right. Harry Potter, like some of the casting, like Alan Rickman is Snape, like that kind of thing. And it's like, how could we do it any other way? Or like with Lord of the Rings, of course, there are a million different things where it's like, how could you do it differently? Mm -hmm. Um, And so with this, I think there are some like casting choices that were just great. Um, James McAvoy is Mr. Tumnus. I really liked James Cosmo as Father Christmas. Jim Broadmead as Professor Kirk. Uh, I think to an extent, Tilda Swinton as White Witch. Peter Dinklage as Trumpkin. Uh, like really good casting choices where you go like, you know, I don't know how you could do much better that, you know, than those. Um, also like some other stuff, Harry Gregson Williams score um, has some high points. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, once he kind of weaves all his themes together, particularly in the concluding portions and uh, his, you know, battle theme from wardrobe and Caspian's theme from Caspian, really great stuff, you know? So I think that that's, that's, those are pieces that are going to be hard to top. I think, too, the, the Walden films kind of captured the feel of the Narnia books, at least in at least in wardrobe and maybe to an extent in Caspian, where you go like, I feel like I watched a Narnia story. And I think that that's an, um, that's an important thing. And I think a lot of people, particularly walking out of wardrobe, felt that, where they were like, this director, this team kind of understood the feel of Narnia. Um, so I think that's good. I just think that there are, there are a lot of places throughout those films where you feel like they didn't quite grok what Lewis intended, mm-hmm. where they'll just like make changes and you don't, you think they probably didn't realize that what they were changing was changing something fundamental about what Lewis mm-hmm. was writing about. Yep. And they, they just didn't know. And it's like, it's like they just didn't kind of look deeply enough. They simply um, didn't get the voyage of the Don Treader. They just didn't get it. <laughs> they didn't get that one at all. <laughs> it's like, I don't even want to talk about what, it. <laughs> what, uh, what did they miss? Like, is there a particular thing that you feel like was just lacking? So I could tell you like examples from, from each film, but in, I think in wardrobe, one of the things is just that the focus is on the children. Cause they were like, we need main characters Who are the main characters, the children. And so lines are said that imply that the kids are kind of the saviors mm. and Ozland is kind of pushed aside a little bit where it, where even father Christmas is like the hope that you have brought your majesties right is, you know, bringing back mm-hmm. spring. Um, 
So there's that. And then in like Prince Caspian, famously, there's this line in the book where Lucy says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. But in the movie, they have Aslan say, every year you grow, so shall I. Uh, Which is an understandable, is immutable. it's an understandable attempt, right, to kind of shorten the line. They're like, mm-hmm. this movie's too long. We got to like shorten lines and adapt this book into a script. I get it. But like in doing that, they completely changed the theological point that Lewis yeah, made with that line. Yeah. And so it's that's like the, the scene you, is yeah. pointless. Yeah. <laughs> you can't chop you can't chop up Aslan's lines because <laughs> Lewis wrote Aslan's lines like he doesn't even talk very much. So right. like every word was painstakingly chosen. Yeah. So I think that's just it's just kind of disappointing because yeah, it's like you have to understand these books before you adapt them. That's all I'm asking. Yeah. Fair <laughs> enough. Zach, I know you're a big Don Treader guy. What did you think about the movie? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have not seen it because oh. I love it so much. Oh, oh, for you. Smart, wow. smart. You don't need um, to see it. You don't need to see it. I have only seen Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I like a lot. Um, wow. But that's the only adaptation I've seen. Would you like watch those with us just so we could see your reaction watching Caspian <laughs> and Dutch Rider? Let's not do that to Zach. <laughs> Z- Zach is such a true scholar. Like He's like, I, I just didn't see the movie. He's like, I just didn't. It's amazing. Rich. Rich, how yeah. much better is the Don Fitter movie than the book in your mind? It's horrendous. <laughs> it's horrendously worse. Yeah, yeah. I was no, re- that I one, was ready to fight you. No, that I one they, they, they tripped over it on so many levels. Yeah. Like the well, for, first of all, like the Don Treader, this is what I was wondering if you guys thought. I, I first of all, I think the only like redeeming moment of that movie is the fact that Will Poulter does such an excellent job just being hateable. Like I just <laughs> yeah. want to he's, punch he's him good so actor. bad. Yeah, yeah. But he's the, um, become a dude. Yeah, he's become a dude now. He has. That's true. That's true. He's um, in Marvel movies. Although he played like the same character in Guardians Three, but just like an annoying person. But anyway, but I just feel like the, there was a very much in the book. Like I remember reading Don Treader as like I was probably in middle school maybe when I first read it probably like sixth or seventh grade. And I remember there being this real like swashbuckling, like almost like a treasure islandy type adventure with like all this intrigue and like each island they stopped that was like more mysterious than the last. And like, I remember being like, it's, this is awesome. It's almost an anthology. Yeah. In the book. Yes. It uh-huh. is, it's these vignettes, yeah. which are so yes. beautiful. And each and island is like more creative than the last yes. one. And you're like, wow, oh, where are they going next? Yeah. And I recognize as an adult now, when I saw the movie when I was in like seventh grade or something, I immediately wrote it off as like, this is garbage. I'm never coming back to it. And I haven't. Um, <laughs> I stuck to my word. I stuck to my word. Oh, this my is God. rubbish. <laughs> it was garbage. 13 yeah, yeah. year old me uh-huh. knew. Chucking a VHS tape across the room. But I also feel like particularly poorly executed. In like the movie's pretty bad. Like I watched it recently with my sister <laughs> and so her fiance, and I literally was, and like this is really saying something. I was literally bored and like struggling to not look at my phone mm-hmm. by the part where they're on like the island with like the slave market. Like I'm already and that's like, like just the done. first island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the and then the whole thing like the book does such an awesome job um yeah from the moment of um remember like the dark island yeah and then like from the dark island to the end of the book i was like absolutely like 
enraptured, like could not put it down. And then like Ramondu and like this, the, them asleep at the table and all that stuff. Like this yeah. is just too good. And in the movie, it's like it feels almost tedious. <laughs> like you're like like where are we going here? And then Reepicheep, sorry Nate, but like Re- I mean you like him in the book, but like Reepicheep in, in the, the movie book, yeah. is <laughs> annoying. Yeah. Like I'm like I'm like like I get why I don't know, dude. <laughs> dude, Reepicheep is the heart of the book. Yeah, and like the heart, the whole theme of the book is longing, right? Mm-hmm. It's longing for adventure, for discovery, for the end of the world, for Aslan's country. Yeah, that's the whole point of the book, and everything is well in Narnia. Things have been set right. The giants have been beaten back. Now we can go on an adventure, and that's the whole point. And so it's just again, a, you realize like they didn't understand what they were adapting because they're like we must turn this into a save the world story it doesn't make sense to go on a mission unless you're doing it to save the world from a green mist yeah it's like so they have to come up with something like that that is the fundamental (laughs) problem with the movie that's the fundamental problem is like you didn't realize you were adapting an adventure story with characters who are longing for that which they have not yet seen but which they believe in and if you adapt it in that way as an episodic series, <laughs> longing for adventure, that you'd be yeah. just you'd be making what it is at its yeah. core, mm-hmm. yeah. and not trying to turn it, it into something else. Yeah, it was a really weird decision though to cast Reepicheep, the the mouse, as like a live like a like Bill Murray should not have played that part. It was weird that he was like a full grown man. It, it wasn't Bill Murray. No, I'm just trying to see if we can fool Zach. Oh, yeah, for a hot <laughs> second, I was like, what are you talking about, dude? Yeah, yeah. It's like a full-grown, full yeah. like, Bill Murray. Not a voiceover, yeah. but but Bill Murray with, like, some spray tan. I was yeah, having yeah. trouble picturing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I wish I had known you were saying that while I was looking Zach. No, but I do feel like the Reaper Cheap we get in the movie, like, it, he just reminds me of, like, that kid in school who, like, is the one that's, like, Miss, you didn't collect our homework. Like, that's just the energy he has. He's just, like, such a Boy Scout. Anyway. Yeah, funny. But, yeah, anything more on the existing adaptations before we move on to the future ones? This isn't an adaptation, but there is a great YouTube channel called Into the Wardrobe that's maybe, like, a year or two old. And what this guy does is he makes videos based on different themes within Narnia or different folklore within Narnia. Ooh. So he has a video on say like, where did the lady of the green kirtle come from? And does all of this research into all of these like fan theories, but also references like documents by C.S. Lewis that like, like aren't necess- that have like information about Narnia that aren't within the Narnia books. Nice. Um, so not an adaptation, but a collection of tributes to to the series that um, anyone who is a fan would would enjoy. In, in the description of this channel, it said, "This is a place for all true friends of Narnia." Ooh, so, nice. that's a great. I wreck. will be consuming all of that content. Yeah, actually. that's a great wreck. Thanks for that. Yeah, into the wardrobe. If we're throwing Rex out, just real quick too. There's a there's a really great audiobook of the magician's nephew in particular, where Kenneth Branagh does the reading, and it's on Audible. I highly recommend it because he's not only an excellent actor, but he does the voices of like Uncle Andrew like so <laughs> good. It's just great, and uh, I highly recommend getting that and just listening to it whenever you feel like escaping to Narnia. 
put on the ring. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's talk about this Gerwig fiasco. So, um, I mean, wow. the newest, I mean, the newest news is the fact that she is the the plan is to adapt the story um, into one story that is not broken up across the books. So that is it a t- is it a TV show or what are we what are we talking about? Is um, it a series. Let me look that up. Yeah, I don't even know if they've announced that. Do we know what form it's going to take? I don't know. All I know is Greta Gerwig is uh, really intelligent and creative and she's, uh, you know, big time. Like she just did the Barbie movie. She's, uh, she's a hotshot in Hollywood. And um, I just have no faith that it's going to be like a faithful interpretation to the text. I feel she's going to try to do something like creative and original with it, which I'm just personally not about. I, I just want like a, I want someone to capture the magic of the book. That is what I want for this adaptation. Um, like I'm not interested in any kind of spin and I'm assuming, I don't know, but I'm assuming that's what it'll be. So, um, but I, I'm excited. I'll, I'll see it. Yeah. So this on variety, um, from like variety magazine, uh, which was posted on November 9th, 2023. Yeah. Um, it says that, uh, they're using the term movie, not show. And they're talking about how they're going, the goal is to quote, break the whole arc Mm-hmm. of Netflix's Chronicles of Narnia franchise. And what it's referring to is that she has said that she doesn't want to start at the obvious place, which is Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe. So what it sounds like is right now the the aim is to make a movie that tells, quote, the whole arc of Narnia, like, in one go. It's got to be a set of movies, though, right? Perhaps. It's got to be. <laughs> that That's is, frankly, not super concerning to me. Like, Lewis published them in an unconventional order. Yeah, he did. People can read them in all sorts well, of orders. I'd like, be excited I'm if not, we didn't I'd, start with Lion, the Witch, Wardrobe, to be honest. Yeah, that is that is not concerning to me. Like, the order. Yeah. yeah. I have a lot of faith in her ability to capture the, the tone mm-hmm. of the series. Um, her adaptation of Little Women, specifically, yeah, so. um, gives me comfort in that. I think she'll be able to capture a really interesting fantasy. I think she'll do a lot of great work visually with world building. Mm -hmm. But like the thing that I am most like, what you're going to do with this is I wonder how she's going to treat Susan Mm -hmm. because the character of Susan is controversial as Lewis has written her, especially with the more like, with the less religious side of the audience, mm-hmm. a lot of people really do not like that she doesn't go to heaven at Aslan's the end. country. Yeah, at the end of the last battle. And that's understandable because there is a reading of the text in which you think, wow, Susan likes lipstick and therefore can't go to heaven, which I think is a reductive. And doesn't it say that she gets like, doesn't it <laughs> say that she got distracted by boys as well? like something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like she she is no longer a friend of Narnia. Right. And I understand why people don't like that because there is a very there's a lens to view that narrative choice from Lewis as a you know, pretty misogynistic point of view. But I think there's also first of all, there is not really evidence that she could never go to Narnia, that she could never go to Aslan's country. And 
There is such a She's deep... She's still alive. Are, are there Calvinists in Narnia? I mean, <laughs> was she predestined? Was she predestined? Yeah. But, like, more important, like, the thing that really is heavy about that to me and the reason why I find it important that she doesn't end up there with everybody else in the end of the last battle, not that she can't ever go to, to fantasy heaven, um, is that there is a really deep sadness that I think a lot of Christians have felt when somebody that they have spent a long time considering a Christian is no longer professing to be a Christian. Yeah. And that is what Susan does in my reading. Yeah. Doesn't it say, um, hopefully I'm not reading into this, but I, I, rec- I recall um, Aslan mentioning that she, or like, doesn't she no longer believe that Narnia is real? Like yeah. she accepts, she convinces herself that it was like a child's story and that's why she is no longer a friend. You know? Yeah, it's it's cool that he was bold enough to write something like that heavy that like, hey, some people fall out of the faith or whatever. But I think what Laura, you're saying is like the reasons behind it are like kind of troubling and, and maybe not well. Yeah, or yeah. I think there's a way to read it to get really angry about Susan not ending up a friend of Narnia at the end of the books. But I also think that there is a way to portray the, like a deeper side of that story. There's like a realism to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, um, so going back to just Lewis's portrayal of adults in the Chronicles of Narnia versus the people who are true friends of Narnia's, you know, Susan, uh, was it Jill who says she makes this remark about like, oh, I wish Susan would actually grow up to be <laughs> implying that Susan had been so consumed with growing up and with with how she is perceived by people. And Susan has always been of the four Pevensey children, the one who is most beholden to fear mm-hmm. and to doubt and most preoccupied with with growing up and not being perceived as a child um so her being excluded at least for the moment from the the company of of aslan and aslan's country is really really profound and it's something that doesn't come out of nowhere it's really something that he has kind of written into her story through the whole time um, but doesn't make it any less tragic or, or heartbreaking Susan's one of my favorites Yeah, there's also a headcanon that I've seen where people like the idea that Susan after living more years and coming back to you know the faith quote um, that she is the narrator <laughs> of the Narnia stories which I don't think is true but I do see why people like it <laughs> I think for me as I think about like what I'd like out of an adaptation, the the first one has kind of been shot down for me as, as Rich has been explaining that it's probably going to be a movie or movies. Uh, and it was uh, Netflix film chief, Scott Stuber, who was saying what, what Rich quoted before about uh, Greta Gerwig trying to figure out how she can break the whole arc of the series. Um, the Narnia series that is. 
But I was hoping for something a little more episodic in nature. I was hoping for like a, a TV series or like a set of seasons where each season was focused on one book. I just think a lot of the books would benefit from that kind of a format. Uh, I mean, most obviously like Horse and His Boy, Don Treader, and Silver Chair, I think would really benefit from that. Because um, instead of trying to like figure out ways of bringing cohesion to the book, you could kind of just embrace the fact that there are these kind of vignettes throughout the books and it would allow them to kind of sit in the significance of the moments a little bit more rather than having to just like rush on to the next thing, which is something that I, I feel, you know, in, yeah. in some of the Narnia films and certainly in like the Harry Potter films and adaptations like that, that just, they're just trying to cram so much in. And if you just did like a six episode series for each book, I think that would just leave so much, so much time to like explore the richness. I mean, it's like making a six hour movie. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, they don't even have to be hour long episodes, yeah. but mm -hmm. like to just give each book three to five hours of space, like would be so nice. And someone like Greta Gerwig would do an amazing job, like making those interesting <laughs> and not boring. And like, um, Lauren, you mentioned the the aesthetics. Like, I, I do think she'll she'll probably excel at that. I, I just think like if I think back to other adaptations with the Lord of the Rings, which I love so much, there's stuff like you know Dwero Delphin, Casadoom, or like Caraskalathon and Lorien, where the the Fellowship enters these places, and it's literally a work of art. It's like a painting, yeah. and you're like, this is not only does this feel real, like they're entering a real place. But it also feels beautiful where you're like, I, I can't imagine like rendering this more beautifully. And it then kind of sits in your head and you remember that image. And that's something that I feel like the Narnia films did not do. I mean, I, I, I don't go like, oh, when I think about, you know, the Stone Table or Aslan's Howe or like the, you know, Beaver's Dam or just any of the locations in Narnia, I don't like immediately say, oh, that gorgeous shot in the Narnia films. Um, and I think that there's room for that, that there are so many of these incredible sequences that occur in the Narnia books and to be able to render those in a way where you, you really get artists on board mm -hmm. who can create these beautiful visuals and then you bring those to life on film and then it, it's really going to sit in people's heads more and I think be more memorable, um, just like the books are so memorable in their way. So I'd love to have that happen. Go fund me Forefront Studios Productions. Yeah, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> um, we'll have a budget similar to <laughs> the BBC, the BBC, the BBC versions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll use your children's stuffed animals. Yeah, I was going to say, let's use Lucy's. <laughs> Lion, yeah, perfect. There amazing, <laughs> amazing. Yeah. The only thing I want to see from the series, um, the upcoming series, is I would, I just finally want to see the less popular books um, adapted. Yeah. And uh, like, yeah. like I, Let's I would. At least get to them. Yeah. Like, I, I honestly think that people, I mean, maybe like younger generations, not so much, but I feel like certainly like millennials and up we all know lion the and wardrobe like the back of our hands you know and i think that like not to you know take anything from it but i think that you could really enliven a new kind of era of interest in the books by just exposing people to the great stories that exist underneath those most famous ones please give me the horse and his boy 
on the screen. I would love that. Yeah, I That'd mean, make also, me so happy. The f- he, Lewis put more effort into designing the world of Kalorman for Horse and His Boy, and Arkenland, for that matter, than he did in most of the other books. Like, mm-hmm. there's more world-building in that one than there is in um, Wardrobe or Caspian, I think. Yeah. You know? So, um, but, like, we, we basically get, like, the default European fantasy land in those first two. But then he, you know, designing an entirely separate kingdom, you know, is, is super cool. Yeah, that yeah. and Magician's Nephew. Right, have so right. Much. Mm-hmm. And, well, and then again, nephew, the, the northern worlds in Silver Chair. Yeah. Super yeah. cool as well. But, but, yeah. but the creation song and Magician's Nephew, imagine that with a good budget, like well produ- well produced visually, like that could be awesome. I almost want, and I know there's many problems with it, so like I'm not making a direct comparison here, but I almost want like a similar kind of treatment that um, – like aesthetically speaking, that was given to Rings of Power. Like there, mm-hmm. there are issues with Rings of Power, but you can't doubt that it's beautifully and and pretty authentically rendered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, how do the elves buzz cut their hair in a, without <laughs> electricity? Is a separate question. <laughs> but uh, do you think we could get Terrence Malick to do the magician's nephew? <laughs> That'd be epic. That'd be sick, dude. I kind of want Timothy Chalamet to play Uncle Andrew. <laughs> He could just wear the same coat that he's wearing as uh, what's his name, Willy Wonka. Wonka. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh boy. Oh, and then Uncle uh, Uncle Diggory when he's older, right? Uh, Could be uh, what's his name, Hugh Grant. It'd be amazing. Anyway, um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of close up here with asking everyone to share um, a favorite moment or quote from the series. There's too many to count. For me, my mind goes to this magician's nephew scene. So uh, Narnia has just been created and um, some stuff goes down. And uh, Aslan asked Diggory, he said, um, you know, the boy, you ready to make this right? Like I have a job for you to do. And Diggory, for a reminder, uh, you know, his mom is dying, right? And sick and he knows this. And um, this is the passage. Uh, I asked, are you ready? Said the lion. Yes, said Diggory. He had for a second some wild idea of saying, I'll try to help you if you'll promise to help my mother. But he realized in time that the lion was not at all the sort of person one could try to make bargains with. But when he had said yes, he thought of his mother, and he thought of the great hopes he had had, and how they were all dying away, and a lump came in his throat and tears in his eyes, and he blurted out, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life, for the tawny face was bent down near his own, and, wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's one of my great... Jesus wept, man. And uh, he's been that. And I I know all of you. I know your stories. I know your lives fairly well. 
I was in a Bible study with most of you for years and I know we've all wept together and we've all been through things and we've been, you know, Jesus has been with us when he's done that. And, uh, you know, when, when he's wept with us and just that, that scene is, will for always, forever and always be important to me. And it, it'll probably get sweeter as the years go by. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful, man. Well, I love in the voyage of the Don Treader when they're in the dark island and they have entered into this shadow in faith and they become besieged by fear. And each person on the Dawn Treader is besieged by their own particular fears or nightmares or, or, or what have you. And Lucy, who may have just the deepest, most endearing faith in Aslan in the whole series, is the one who calls out to him. And it says, Lucy looked along the beam and presently something saw something in it. At first it looked like a cross, then it looked like an aeroplane, then it looked like a kite, and at last, with a whirring of wings, it was right overhead and was an albatross. It circled three times round the mast and then perched for an instant on the crest of the gilded dragon at the prow. It called out in a strong, sweet voice what seemed to be words, though no one understood them. After that, it spread its wings, rose, and began to fly slowly ahead, bearing a little to starboard. Drinian steered after it, not doubting that it offered good guidance, but no one except Lucy knew that as it circled the mast, it had whispered to her, courage dear heart and the voice she felt sure was aslan's and with the voice a delicious smell breathed in her face and personally i i love that moment because i i feel like my in my own journey of faith mine has almost been more like Susan's in that my wrestling is always with fear mm-hmm. and the the tr- the the struggle to to trust and to let go and so I'm always so deeply encouraged by Lucy's faith and by the sweetness of of Aslan's Aslan's words here um it's Aslan who Lucy calls out to and it's Aslan's words that bring peace amidst the darkness. And it illustrates for me the reality of God's word that he has given us to guide us in our journeys in this life, through the valleys, through the the grief. And I'm just, I am forever grateful for for that illustration that that Lewis has given us in that story. Amen. So I'll give one from my favorite book, The Silver Chair. Aslan has given Jill Pohl a number of signs to follow as they go on their journey to find the Lost Prince. And one of those signs is that 
the first person to ask something in Aslan's name is the lost prince that they're looking for. And near the end of the book, someone does invoke Aslan's name, asking them to untie him from a silver chair. Uh, but up to that point, he's been acting not very much like a good prince. He's been acting kind of more like a villain. So the heroes are trying to decide what they ought to do. And Jill says, oh, if only we knew. I think we do know, said Puddleglum. Do you mean you think everything will come right if we do untie him, said Scrub. I don't know about that, said Puddleglum. You see, Aslan didn't tell Pull what would happen. He only told her what to do. That fellow will be the death of us once he's up, I shouldn't wonder. But that doesn't let us off following the sign. <laughs> nice. I love it. That's great. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, God gives us a lot of commands, but he doesn't tell us what's going to happen. He doesn't really... Uh, you know, tell us what the result of our actions is going to be. He kind of expects us to to leave results up to him. And I think it's so powerful to see someone actually living that out. Like someone actually saying, yeah, like God told us to do this. I'm going to do it even though like, actually it's probably going to turn out horrible, <laughs> but, <laughs> but this is what we have to do. And we know we actually do know what's right. Um, there's that, there's that confusion and that negative peer pressure and opposition, but there's the word of Aslan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Powerful. And Lewis continually giving us that central theme of the fact that doing what he has planned for us isn't necessarily going to be pleasant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Might not even survive mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. How about you, Lauren? So I've talked about quite a few of my favorite moments in characterizations and all that. So instead of uh, reading you another one, I am going to share with you um, my favorite just Lewis quote in general. Since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. Otherwise, you are making their destiny not brighter, but darker. That's great. Narnia presents so many like heroic figures that are heroic in a way that is just so human that I feel like I have many times thought of like, oh, I can do this thing because this person did it when they were a child, you know, in the story. So mm -hmm. that's great. Um, I don't have a quote for y'all, but the scene that stands out to me more than anything in the whole series is the... Uh, the chopping up of the silver chair and um, the symbolism of like breaking down what it is that has like bound us to sin and like staying away from God. Love that sequence. But I also love in the horse and his boy, the fact that uh, Shasta turns out to be the lost prince of Arkenland. Uh, and I always, um, was encouraged by the fact that like we are adopted mm -hmm. sons of of God, uh, adopted children of God, um, if we are Christian, and that makes us also kind of the adoptive brother in a sense of Christ. And um, I I've always been very uh, 
encouraged and and kind of like given hope from the imagery of finding out later that we are actually royal you know and of course this happens at the Pevensies but for some reason it just felt more real to me when it was Shasta Mm -hmm. Um, well they learn it sooner Right. Yes. For Shasta, it like takes a long time. Well, and which makes it more powerful. Well, and unlike the Pevensies, Shasta has nothing. He's mm-hmm. like an orphan, effectively like escaped slave. You know. I think um, there's also a part of it for me that's like Aslan made the Pevensies yeah, royals, right? But like Shasta was born. That he way. was a prince the whole time, right? And just and that's just a really yeah. like fun and special narrative. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's cool. Any any kind of like last minute thoughts about Narnia? If 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 I don't know why you would have listened this long if you've never read Narnia, but uh, does anyone want to just get? Can you summarize a shout out why people should read Narnia if they haven't? I'm not gonna do that, but I will say that the worst thing about my husband, whom I love oh, very wow. much, the worst thing about him is that he hates Narnia. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. And this should Whoa. change your opinion about him. Okay, so what what would you tell him? <laughs> I've tried multiple okay, your times. Your husband is literally the person that I wrote that question for. Someone who's like <laughs> made it this far and doesn't like Narnia. I think that there are so many layers of why Narnia is beautiful. There's the truth of God's word that Lewis layered in to his fiction. And then there's just really good fiction and really good storytelling and just fun prose and they're just nice to read that was a great i love that well said lauren is what i'm saying yes it is what i wanted you know the chronicles of narnia are incredibly effective at taking biblical concepts which might seem like esoteric or difficult to believe and making them real making them like emotionally powerful and i think profoundly believable where you go like yes like this is how things work like i I understand it on a better level than just from reading about theology Uh, and i think your mileage might vary based on like how much you like children's fantasy but regardless, I think anyone can come to the Chronicles of Narnia and find something new about Jesus. And by knowing him there for a little while, you can know him better here. <laughs> Love that. I would say, um, you know, there's passages in scripture where Jesus celebrates and dignifies children and talks about how there's wisdom that is revealed to them and not to to the pharisees and not to the gentiles but to children and jesus rejoices that that is god's choice in the matter and it seems that one of the most redemptive things that we can do is to reclaim that which was true about us when we were children and that is the, the, the way that children believe, the way that children trust, the way that children imagine, the way that children try and try and try. Um, and reading Chronicles of Narnia, at least for me personally, has been a means of reclaiming that which was 
like sacred about being a child wow. and so that that would be my encouragement for for reading chronicles of narnia love it well said thank you all so much for listening we'd love for you to continue this conversation tell us what you like about narnia tell us what you don't like about the voyage of the don treader movie um <laughs> you know leave a comment on instagram at forefront fest yeah yeah please do uh, yeah, if you'd like to join this conversation, please reach out, like Nate said, at Forefront Fest on social media. You can email info at ForefrontFestival.com. Uh, friends of Narnia, friends of the show, keep engaging with excellent art and authentic Christian faith. Until next time. <laughs>